0: You're listening to The Snap Hook with Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Join us as we take a look at all things sports and politics in the world that we live in today. Yeah, I, I don't want to share a beer with the leader of the free world at the end of the day, right? Over 300
1: house rates are non competitive.
0: If you look through, it's been Republicans in charge. We try and help you understand the political news by comparing it to our sports stories of the day. And just like a snap hook, we're coming in from the left side of the fairway.
1: People who are in control of things decide this person has displeased us.
0: Welcome back to the Snap Hook listeners part two of this week's episode as we had a great talk about some of the gaps in the political world the gaps of knowledge the gaps of wealth the gaps of information Uh, but now we as we always do are going to start to transition our conversation into the sports world as you always get a little bit of the best of both worlds here with Scott and I Scott how are you doing today? Uh, we're doing
1: fantastic. And, you know, speaking of gaps, and then this is something, you know, Tim and I, you know, we, we shoot ideas back and forth uh, over the course of the week. And so the first, the opening discussion, the uh, idea that he brought up, and I guess it's the the gap between what Davis Mills really is and what fans seem to think he is.
0: So, you know,
1: yeah. with the with uh, the
0: gap theme there. That one's frustrating man I, I don't know about you but I'm in a few different Texans groups on Facebook and I am pretty active on on Twitter and with some Texans fans and there's a there's a, a significant part of, of Texas fan base and I'm not gonna say it's a majority but because it's not but it's a loud minority that somehow still thinks David Mills could be the guy and that you don't need to bring in a veteran. If you're if you're not going to draft a quarterback this year, I definitely think you need to bring a veteran. That was our conversation last week. Feel free to go listen to it. But there's a group of Texans fans out there who think you don't need to draft a veteran quarterback. That Davis Mills is the guy. You know, draft all the other skill positions around him and watch him flourish. And I I don't know about you. I feel like I know your answer on this. But I have seen enough of Davis Mills. I don't want to see him take another competitive snap for the Houston Texans, unless there's an injury ever again in my life. He is somebody that he's a third-round draft pick, and he performed like a third-round draft pick for two straight years, and he's not the guy. So why are you going to keep running somebody out there who's not the guy? I don't know about you, Scott, but there's just some people out there who can't seem to look past the tools that a guy has, and, and they love those shorts and shirts workouts. They love those stats. They love the arm strength. We've got two years of game tape on Davis Mills. Um, we've seen his highs. We've seen his lows. And we've seen this year pretty a full season's worth of play. I don't see any any evidence that this is a guy that we should give any more snaps to unless you're forced to through injury.
1: Yeah, and I, I've been writing for Battle of Redblog all year. And, and I, I basically, um, my features that I run through the season are called the value of things. And in, in, in each step, I'm looking at the previous week's games. And I'm talking about, I'm looking at basic numbers. I'm looking at PFF scores. And every step of the way, I do you know a feature on the quarterback, which I will do again next season, whoever the quarterback is. And the comments section is just a minefield of all these people. And it's almost like, it's almost like Davis Mills is their alcoholic uncle. You know, you have your alcoholic uncle. He's like, well, he's had a rough life. No, he doesn't really have a problem. He only drinks at night. Oh, well, he only has a six pack a day. It's not a big, oh, you know, it's not, you know. And so we have all these people making these, you know, excuses for Davis Mills. All the offensive line sucks. Well, how bad does it really suck,
0: really? Yeah, we we went over that last week. It's really not as bad as as people say it is.
1: He doesn't have anybody to throw to, the coaches suck. And and it's like, yeah,
0: some of these things are true.
1: And I I will, you know, I will be the first to say it. Uh, We have a new offensive coordinator uh Bobby Slowick. We don't know how he'll be, but I have the contents of my wallet that say he'll be better than Pep Hamilton. Pretty sure that's going to be the case. So you throw Davis Mills out there, you add a receiver or two, you add a running back or two, maybe you had a veteran center. Maybe he's got Gerard Johnson from, you know, Texas A and M University, uh, who's gonna be his quarterback coach. Maybe he can be like a you know a QB, you know, whisperer or something. And maybe Davis Mills looks better. But, you know, the comment that you made I want to highlight is that there is no way you could watch the Super Bowl and watch what Jalen Hurts was doing and watch what Patrick Mahomes was doing and then take a look at Davis Mills and said, yep, that's our guy. No, there's no way. Now, is is there a Jalen Hurts in this draft? I don't know. Is uh, Patrick Mahomes in this draft? I'm almost certain there isn't. But is there somebody that's going to be closer to their level than what Davis Mills is? I would say almost certainly. I, I could guarantee it. Somebody is. And, you know, the thing is, this is what we talked about with the base. We talked about with this with baseball, too, uh, with, with the baseball analogy of guys like Jose Siri and Carlos Gomez we mentioned. Every once in a while, Davis Mills has a throw where you're like, okay, that's not bad. Like when we watched uh, the Eagles game they played earlier in the year, you know, the eventual NFC champions. Davis Mills looked pretty damn good in the first half. The problem is, is that Davis Hill Mills never put together a whole football game. Never. He was either crappy in the first half, and then when we're behind and the other team's playing a prevent, and all of a sudden he's, you know, leading us to touchdown drives and everybody's going like, ooh, look at Davis Mills. And it's like, well, yeah, the other team's in a prevent." You know, I could probably complete half those passes. And then, you know, there's some games like the Eagles game where he looks good in the first half or the first Colts game, which was probably the most maddening game of the year, you know, when you look back on it. And you're like, all of a sudden, this guy in the fourth quarter of games where you were competitive, all of a sudden he shuts down. He's a basket case. You have to play a whole football game. You can't hang your hat on three or four good throws a game. When you're a quarterback, you I mean, 80,
0: 90% of your throws
1: have to be on point, or you're, you're just not it.
0: I think you know, watching that Super Bowl last night, Jalen Hurts, in my opinion, one fumble that was just freaky. But other than that, the guy played a damn near flawless football game and lost. And so when you look at that, because Patrick Mahomes played a damn near flawless football game as well. So when you look back at that game, and you're right. How can you look at Davis Mills and say, not even that he could become that. Because there's there's many types of franchise quarterback, right? You know, Joe Burrow can go in there and compete with those guys. Josh Allen can go in there and compete with those guys. J- Davis Mills can't, you know. And and so there's no there's no quarterback, coach, offensive coordinator out there that – you know, Kyle Shanahan could probably take Davis Mills and, and, and win 11 games and get to the playoffs with him in, in San Francisco. But at the end of the day, the moment he's got to face a legitimate quarterback who – Is not going to turn the ball over. He's going to score at least, you know, a field goal on every drive. Probably going to put you in position to score a touchdown dang near every time he touches the football. Um, and you've got to, you've got to open your playbook up a little bit more and sling it around a little bit more. That's when you get exposed. And that's where a guy like Davis Mills will never be able to compete. You've got to have somebody who can, can have that good first half, saw what the defense was giving him. In that first half, go to his coach and say, "Hey, coach, these are the routes that are having success. These are the things that we're getting open. This cornerback can't stay with our guy. i You know, the the slot guy, the, our slot receiver's got a real good look on this. Let's get more plays getting him involved. That's what we need. Not, I had a good first half. I'll keep do it again, coach. Call same place. No adjustments needed. I was doing well. That's that's Davis Mills, right? Like he's not in there helping with the game planning for the second half or anything." And, the Texans were, were a top-down run organization of a failure last year, so you can't hold that all on him. But at the end of the day, he doesn't have the skill set. He doesn't have the poise. I, I think at the end, of the, I think his top comp ceiling he could ever be is is, is Danny Dimes and with the Giants, Daniel Jones. I think that is about the most you could ever hope for out of Davis Mills if he's at his best. I think he gives you what Daniel Jones gives. The, the New York Giants, and I don't see Daniel Jones hoping the Giants win a Super Bowl. I think they wish that they could do something different. They're in a really awkward position right now with Daniel Jones. And with the Texans, at least he's a third-year guy who you didn't draft in the first round. You can draft a first-round quarterback this year, or, you know, D- David Carr was literally just cut two hours before this show. There's options out there, but <laughs> none of the options need to be Davis Mills.
1: Well, and, and just a In fact, I would not comp him to Daniel Jones, because Daniel Jones is actually a really good athlete. Um, uh, Mills is
0: better than advertised, but he's... (laughs) You're right.
1: Um, If I were going to comp him... Are you a Kirk Cousins comp? No. Hell no. Um, If I was going to comp him to anybody, uh, and this pains me to say this, because I'm a TCU alum, he's he's Andy Dalton. If... uh, I think he could be like his highest ceiling right. is Andy Dalton. Yeah. I think that's fair. Right. And I think he's probably. Oh, I'll put it this way: he's Andy Dalton today. Like if you looked at Andy Dalton right now, if you look at Andy Dalton as a Bengal, Dalton was better when he was a Bengal. You know, that was when he was, you know, at his at his height.
0: Were you winning any Super Even Dalton? then, even as a Bengal with weapons, all was the weapons you could have, once? was he going to still? Once? Right, that's and that's Mills, right? Give give Mills all the weapons in the world. Let's say clear all the rosters, and you you sign Jamar Chase, and you sign uh, I, I don't know uh, Justin Jefferson on the other side, and you got Travis Kelsey at tight end, and you've got uh, you know the the kid from Vegas, Josh Jacobs, in the backfield. Mills isn't taking that team to the Super Bowl. That's a that's a nine and eighteen. That's a with Davis Mills at quarterback and all those weapons. That's a nine and eighteen. Yeah, maybe fighting
1: if, for a walk off. Maybe if he had the eighty five Bears defense or the two thousand Ravens defense.
0: You know, then I maybe- mean, look at look at the, okay. So look at the two thousand and six Bears that that went to the Super Bowl with Rex Grossman. They're like ten. They, they were they were not dominant. He they, he almost lost a lot of those games. They asked him to throw for two hundred yards and they ran the ball. I mean that is. Davis Mills is not there to distribute the football. He is not the point guard. Like if He's not someone who could keep that offense happy. You could have all those stars, and Davis Mills is not a good enough distributor to keep them from griping at each other in the locker room.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Kyle Shanahan, and what's funny is is that there are a lot of people out there who are convinced Jimmy G is a huge upgrade. And, and he's a free agent. You know, he's available. He won a playoff game with fewer than 10 passing attempts. I mean, and, and then all of a sudden he gets to the Super Bowl, and Kyle Shanahan's like, "Okay, we're up by you know ten points. I want you to take us home." What does Jimmy do? Do he craps the bed? Uh, he has a wide open wide receiver. He can't connect with him. And I, there was somebody you know from our site that showed uh, a YouTube video of Davis Mills with, I can't remember who the receiver was, you know. Does it really matter? I mean, none of our receivers really matter. He's sitting there wide open on the sideline, and he overthrows them by like seven, eight feet. I mean, it's going out of bounds. It's probably hitting a fan with popcorn, spilling his beer. I mean, it was just the most ridiculous throw. The thing is, is that you, in order to be the guy, you have to have at least one elite trait, at least one cause you look at Tom Brady, Tom Brady, terrible athlete. Like, you know, when he was at the combine, he was, you know, overweight, he was just, you know, slower than, you know, absolute crap. I mean, his arm strength, not all that great, huge competitor, smart, made quick decisions. That was his cheat code basically. So if you look at, you know, the quarterbacks in this game, Jalen Hurts, really good athlete you know he uh, a really good running quarterback you know really good you know Patrick Mahomes not as great running the ball but Patrick Mahomes has that amazing arm talent where he can put his arm at different angles and and do you know great things with the ball but you, you mentioned Joe Burrow you know has elite traits Josh Allen elite traits what's Davis Mills
0: elite trait he has a long neck Longest neck. Oh, you beat me to it. Longest neck in the NFL. But, yeah, I think and the one elite trait they all share, though, is that quick decision-making. If you're going to be the guy, if you're going to be a franchise guy, you've got to be able to think quick under pressure. And I think any time Davis Mills legitimately got pressure, he buckled. You know, the first thing he do is run backwards or throw just throw a duck and – you know, Brady was Brady's one of the best at buying time, stepping up in the pocket, taking a hit, delivering a ball anyway, probably because he knows he's gonna get a flag for taking the hit. But at the same time, you know, Brady was Brady was never shying away from contact in his Patriot days. Brady stepped up into pressure and delivered the football. Same can be said for, for Peyton Manning. Those guys both were fantastic at identifying coverages, at the line of scrimmage, and making quick decisions. And there's a reason that they made slot receivers a ton of money because they can make those quick decisions and get the ball out of their hand quickly. There were three or four years where the Patriots had literally no run game to speak of. And it was just quick passes to Edelman or or Wes Welker. That was their run game or they had the quick little tight end dump. That was what they did to keep safeties in the box. It wasn't running the football. It was Brady getting the ball out of his hand in like less than two seconds. That's how they kept teams um, honest on defense. And so, That one trait that I feel like every elite quarterback has something else, right, where it's the arm strength, the athleticism, but they all make good decisions under pressure. They all make good, quick decisions. And and, and Davis Mills is a guy who you can tell he didn't play enough football before he got to the NFL. He didn't get a lot of starts in college, didn't get a lot of starts in high school. We keep making comps. I mean, he's Matt Castle, right? He's a guy who... Just never really had the reps, but had some some traits about him that people thought they could mold into a starting quarterback. At some point, experiment over. Let's, we've got a pick. Let's roll with it.
1: Yeah, and I think we're, um, there was a story that one of uh, Brady's former teammates told about him that is really telling. He said that they were at a bar, and they just had a contest of who could chug beers the fastest. Stupid game, stupid contest, right? Brady refused to lose. He took on Lyman. He took on everybody, and he was determined that you know. And he you know, if he lost, he was pissed off. Have we ever seen Davis Mills pissed off about losing? I mean, he came up with a comment after the season where he said, like, "I've shown that I can win in this league." And like, what? When you're five and twenty, dude? What are you, what are you talking yeah. about? And and the thing is is that there's a lot of people that crushed him for saying he's stupid and it's like, No, that's not stupid. That's just um you have to have confidence
0: in your own ability. But it's Yeah, of- every every quarterback should think they're elite, right? Like Joe Flacco called himself elite at one point. If if you're the guy who's starting, you you should have that swagger when you walk in the huddle.
1: But they, they had Jalen Green um, after that game that we talked about in our last episode where they lost 130 to 128. And Jalen Green makes his comment like, Oh boy, that was fun. You're like, what? You blew a lead at the end of the game, dude. What do you what are you doing? And so there are just some guys who losing just doesn't seem to bother them enough. And and Mills is not certainly not the only one. I think Tony Romo probably was there too. I mean, Tony Romo, you know, certainly had more skills and was, you know, a nice player, but he just didn't, it didn't seem to bother him enough. And, you know, you can look at other, you know, quarterbacks in this league and, and they're, you know, they're, other similar, you know, they're, are the similar cases where guys just like, it just doesn't, you know, they're not as maniacal about winning. Uh, David Carr, that was kind of the, the, you know, the, the, The problem with him is I think a lot of people sit there and say he didn't have an offensive line. But to hear people tell it, he was the last one in, the first one to leave. And so, you know, eventually, you know, you have to have a guy. And that's we were talking about the guys we like. And that's why I like Bryce Young, because he seems to have that maniacal need to study to win, you know, to succeed. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why I like him. You know, or maybe C.J. Stroud is not quite on that level. Will Levis is not quite on that level. Give me all the tricks you want. But if you give me a guy who absolutely hates to lose, that's the guy I want on my side.
0: I'm with you a thousand percent. You know, every every sport's got that guy, every, every generation who's just refused to lose it, whether it was Michael Jordan or Kobe. Um... The same could be said for Brady. There's there's always that guy who just won't lose. And I, I think you could say the same for Mahomes. You know, Mahomes is a guy who hates losing. He doesn't do it often. But there's always that innate ability that he's going to find a way to pull a W out of a loss. And he doesn't ever give up on a game. He doesn't ever say, you know what, this one's too far to reach. We'll get him next year. That's just not who he is. And it's crazy that you have to say that's what we're looking for, because every athlete should be that way. But there's there's thousands of examples of, of why that's not the case. Whether you look at a guy's leaving the PGA tour for live because li- winning and is not the most important thing. It's all about the dollar bills. Or you know a guy like Eddie Lacy who <laughs> had the world at his fingertips. You're drafted by um, you know the Packers to go be the running back next to Aaron Rodgers for his historic football franchise, and all you gotta do is keep your body in shape, and you and you couldn't do it because it just wasn't that important to you, or it's your Marcus Russell, you know, there's there's countless, countless examples of guys with unbelievable physical gifts where winning wasn't the most important thing in their life, it, no matter what the other thing was, whether it's, you know, some guys it's drugs and alcohol, some guys it's money, some guys it's fame and fortune, some guys it's just. They don't love the game, and that's that's okay. You know, that's a job for those people, too. Not everyone's going to win a Super Bowl championship. Some guys are, you know, some guys are the Kylo Murrays of the world, right, where you're going to look good, you're going to put some good fantasy numbers up out there, but are you really going to stay up late studying the playbook? Are you really going to do those extra things you need to make sure that you're the most knowledgeable guy in the field on Sunday? And, and there's some guys that just don't want to do that. But at the end of the day, if you can find a guy that, as you said, hates to lose, won't lose. Like he will, whether it's a game of pickup basketball or, uh, you know, a, a game of putt, putt, whatever it is. I want that guy. I want that guy that wants to win at everything period.
1: Uh, and in speaking of happier times and teams that do win, uh, our Astros made a the guys move we want. Uh, the Astros made a move this last week. Um, they signed Christian Javier to a five-year extension, sixty-four million dollars, and and it's been basically uh, structured the same way that a lot of the other extensions, where it starts off small and then those last couple of years are just huge balloon payments, you know, kind of like where Bregman is currently in his contract. Um, but you know, there were some guys we talked. We've talked extensively about Kyle Tucker, so I'm going to take him off the table. So I'm going to just give you some other names. And see if you're going yay or nay on them, and at what cost. So the first name we uh, saw, if you're paying attention to uh, MLB trade rumors, Fromberba Badez.
0: Yeah, that one's. It got leaked that they started it and it was going to get around like 150 million, but then Fromber's representative came out and said they hadn't had that discussion yet. Um, first of all, my answer yes, obviously you I I think you signed fromber to a contract that allows him to retire as an astro that's that's my opinion this is this is our guy for the next ten seasons go get him because Fromber's stuff is is one that I don't think it's gonna lose a lot over time I think his his ground ball he lives by the ground ball he's not looking to get a ton of punch outs so I think, and also the way he works, he's a guy. You want to talk about a guy that hates to lose? Fromber Valdez is that guy. So to me, I, I think it's uh, seven years, one hundred and fifty. To me, is 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 a number that I feel very confident giving a guy like Fromber, who, on top of what he does on the field, is a, is a fantastic human being off the field. I mean, last off season, he's still pitching on his you know, arbitration numbers. He's not making a ton of money. He built a church in his home country in the off season last year from, from, from the dirt. He erected walls and a building and filled it with the, 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 the Bibles and the, the hymnals and everything that you need to worship. That's a guy who doesn't have a lot wanting to do that, wanting to get back to where he came from. That's the kind of guy that I want to, I want to give some, some money to and let him, let him do some good and, and, and not let him pitch for anybody else.
1: Yeah. I, I'll tell you what, um, if I were his agent, I would be going Tonya Harding on whoever released that report, because basically that just, it, that kills his, his bargaining power. Because think about it, if he were to come away with a deal that would be significantly less than 150000000 million, he'd look like a jamoke after this hundred fifty. And then if he comes in saying, no, really, I was thinking more 200 $250 million, then it's like, wait a minute, that's way more than what y'all were talking about when they weren't talking in the first place. I generally don't want to go 10 years on a pitcher. I generally don't want to go 10 years on anybody, but um, a pitcher, I find that difficult. He's 29 years old, so I could go seven on him, and you know you could go seven, 200, easy, I think.
0: Um, um, yeah, I'd be
1: fine with that. And and so, yeah, you know, what's going to be hard with and and I lo- and I haven't really done a deep dive into what the Braves have done because I know what they've signed a bunch of their guys and so, but I don't know what their total payroll is uh, off the top of my head, and I don't know what their spending cap is. You know, that's a little bit harder. I think with with Crane, Crane likes to stay. Uh, he said he'll go over the tax threshold, but. They've never actually done it, so the the problem is is that you know I've got a you know pretty long list of guys here, you know, and if you give every one of these guys an extension, you're basically done spending, you know, for the next several years.
0: But what the Braves have done well, though, especially the Braves, is they extended guys very early on, and I and I think the Astros they tried to do that. At the beginning of the Jim Crane era, um, and maybe even just before, like with, with John Singleton and Jerry Cozart, they offered them both 10 year, $10 million contracts, when they were still in AAA. Cozart said no. Singleton said yes. Singleton loses his work ethic. Doesn't work out for him. It doesn't work out for the Astros, but he's got $10 million. Cozart bet on himself. Um, his career didn't pan out the way he, he wanted to, and he wishes he had that $10 million. So, the Braves they got uh, Albie's on a, an unbelievable deal to where people thought he was taken advantage of early on in his career. This guy Michael Harris has been in the big leagues for one one season and they signed him to an extension. Both of their young starting pitchers they signed pretty early on in their career, so they're not able to accrue enough big stats to demand huge numbers. And so, like in my opinion, if if Hunter Brown shows you a good season next year, that's the kind of guy that you lock up now so you don't have to worry about expensive arbitration years later on. And to me, that's that seems to be what the Braves' M.O. has been. It's as soon as they show you they're going to be big leaguers, sign them and don't, don't worry about paying them more later because we'll get them cheap now.
1: Well, and I think where the Braves, that's working out for them, is that they have been very effective at developing talent. You had Michael Harris come out of nowhere this year. You had that guy Grissom, you know, whenever uh, Albies went down. Grissom comes up, plays well. Now Grissom's going to be their shortstop. And so, you know, you were able to let Dansby Swanson go. Um, and so I think if you believe in Dana Brown's ability to draft and sign good amateur talent, good international talent, I think, you know, the method of signing your own stars can work. Because what you have to have is you have to have like if you have like a Framber Valdez, you know, for nearly thirty million a year, maybe he has his arm just gives out one year. Well, got to replace him in the rotation. Who do you got? Well, right now, if you look at the Astro system after Hunter Brown, eh, not much. But of course, you know that was done whenever we were trading a bunch of guys for Zach Greinke. We were trading guys for Garrett Cole. You know, we were you know we're trading, you know, if you go back even to like the, the Carlos Gomez Mike Fires deal and you're trading, you know, those guys. And like,
0: there's been some bust there's been some busts along the way too is, sure. you know, you look at a guy like Forrest Whitley who was supposed to be here already dominating in the big leagues and we we still haven't seen that guy.
1: And that's where I have um I've been beating this drum for years, even going back, you know, to the Luna days, you know, before the Luna days, because I don't know if you remember, uh, you remember a guy named Jordan Wiles? Oh, yeah. He was the shit in our system. I mean, he was the guy.
0: And, and he was garbage when he got here.
1: And over the course of his bigly career has been OK, but not great. But see, the problem is, is when you have one B-level prospect, and everybody else is a D or an F, you're like, "Oh, look at this guy! He's awesome!" Yeah. When really he's a B. The key is is that you have to get three, four, five, six. You know, if you're talking about arms, or if you're talking about like we have a good situation now at catcher because now you know you let Christian Vasquez go. Now you have two young catchers maybe one of them pants out the odds of both of them painting out are not good, but the odds of one of them being a decent backup catcher, not that bad. And so, but then that's where you have to have that at every position, or if you have two or three guys, you know, like, cause you have some guys down there, you know, Pedro Leon in center field, great, tremendous athlete. He's kind of like that Jose Siri where he can, there's nothing athletically he can't do on a baseball field. Except there's a lot of swing and miss in his game, and so is he going to make it as a star, you know, center fielder or a regular center fielder? Maybe he can play a little bit of shortstop, so maybe he could be like a super utility guy. You know, there, there's all kinds of possibilities. But the, th- the key is, is that if you have other guys at that position, then you're not putting all your eggs into the pager Leon basket. Then, you know, you're sitting there saying, well, let's see what he does. You know, maybe he makes it. Maybe he doesn't. If he doesn't, we have another guy that could, you know, maybe do some of these same things. If we trust Dana Brown to build that kind of system back up, it's going to take some time because, you know, when you win World Series championships, you're picking low in the first round. And that's even assuming that they don't, the league doesn't take away your first and second round picks for, for cheating but, you know, if you're picking between 25 and 30 every year, the level of prospects you're going to get, not necessarily great. I mean, the teams that, you know, and this is how the Astros got good. You know, they were picking in the top 10 every year. That's how you build up that prospect change. And it's going to take some time. But if we trust Dana Brown to do it, signing some of these guys. Okay, Number, the next guy we're going to stay on the mound, Luis.
0: Real quick, though, Scott, I think – I think if you had Dana Brown two years ago, after the 2020 season, I feel like you, you saw a change in Fromber in that playoffs where he and Carlos had that conversation on the mound and he goes out. That was the time to sign him. Yeah, That was the time to do the extension with Fromber. Um, Luis, Luis Garcia should already be done. Like If you're going off that model of you show me you can compete at this level, I trust in you, I'm going to pay you, go get better. Luis Garcia should be done this offseason. Luis Garcia should be the, the next one on your list, right? Because he may not be the number one, but he's going to be a guy who could be a three, four, five in your rotation for the next five to ten years.
1: Yeah, and you could probably, and I would assume you would get him less for Javier. And yeah. so I'm assuming you could probably get him somewhere around the neighborhood of $10 uh,
0: average. I, I was going to say, you could probably get Luis Garcia right now for like $7.5 million, $8 a year. If you gave him five. If you went to Luis Garcia and said, I'll give you five years, $40 million. I think he signs that contract. And I would do it in a minute because,
1: yeah, yeah. The thing is, is that, because what you're looking for and, and, and this is what I mentioned, I think in, in either the last episode, episode four, last where, you know, according to fan a win is about $8 million. So are we going to gamble that Luis Garcia can produce one win in, in terms of war? I mean, I would hope so. Yeah, and 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 that's where see that's where you start to make that's where you start to make you know your money you know moving forward is like when a Christian Javier, and I don't know if people realize how good he's been the last two years. Do you realize in two years' time, he has given up four hits to the New York Yankees. Four. Yeah. Hits. Hits, not runs. Hits.
0: Uh, and 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 he's only going to get better. Like I truly feel like we have just hit the like he, as soon as he kind of figures out a like a third put away pitch, he's got the fastball, he's got a pretty decent slider. If he could get like a changeup that went down and into righties that worked away from the bats of lefties, um <laughs> he's only going to get better. I mean, he's still so young. He's he's got that they call that invisible fastball—the way it, it comes out of his hand, you can't see it until it's too late. If you pair that with like a dynamite circle change, I, I he'd be unhittable. He's already unhittable at times, but if if you put a, a circle change with that slider, uh, it, it it would be just filthy.
1: And I think uh, I I kind of liken him not health wise because you know health has been a huge concern, but I, I like him. You know he's he's similar to Lance McCullers Jr. In that there are games where Lance McCullers Jr. You know particularly in the, against Seattle in the playoffs where they couldn't hit him. And you know Javier's the same way. The problem is, is that they throw so many pitches per hitter. They just can't go that deep into games. They can't give you, and that's why I love Framber. Framber routinely gives you seven, eight innings, and that's just rare in the game today. I mean, most of the time, you know, a guy gives you six. You're just patting him on the butt and say, "Thanks, you know, you know, go to the showers." Um, that's the one thing I want to see from. Javier and Lance is I want to see them be a little more economical at times, you know, maybe have like a five or seven pitch inning, you know, where guys are swinging at the first pitch and, you know, hitting weak contact, getting outs. The problem is, is that, you know, he's so hard to hit, he's going five, six pitches per hitter and you're just going to, it's going to eat away at you. And so that's where I'm hoping he develops, you know, Third pitch, yeah, I'd love to see it, but I'd love to see him find a way, and and McCullers too, of just you know being a little bit more economical, have like one or two quick innings a night where you're pitching ten pitches or less, you know, so that you can go out, you know out there and maybe get you
0: into the seventh inning every now and then. That was that was what Verlander did so well. You look at sometimes you look at Verlander's pitch count, and you're like, oh man, he's at seventy five pitches through four innings. And then he'll come out in the fifth inning, and you know he'll have a real quick seventh pitch, fifth inning, and we're right back on track. And, and now he goes seven. Um, same same kind of thing with Fromber. There's there's been numerous games where Fromber had some 20, 25 pitch first innings, and then he'll go back to back innings with you know a ten pitch inning, a twelve pitch inning, and okay, we're right back on track. Um, Lance McCullers. He I love Lance first and foremost. Love Lance McCullers. He tries to pick at the zone a little bit too much. He works. He's got a great curveball and a pretty good fastball, but he works backwards with a lot of guys where he wants to He wants to work his fastball off of his curveball. That's just how he pitches, and he throws so many curveballs that you're right. He, just, he throws a lot of pitches because he throws so many breaking pitches that he wants you to chase. He wants you to expand the zone. That's his game because he's going to continue to throw those breaking pitches that some break in the zone. Then he shows you one that looks like it's going to stay there, and then the bottom falls out of it. And then next you know you got the two seamer coming back in your hands for weak contact. But but Lance has such a good two seam fastball. I think you're absolutely right that if he if he pitched a contact earlier in at bats with that two seamer, uh, he could you know, he would he would cost Louisville Slugger a lot of money as he chews up a lot of bats, but he would get a lot further into games with a lot of weak contact.
1: He reminds me uh Yeah this is before your time. Uh, Daryl Kyle. Um, I remember DK. But uh you don't remember him probably as a young pitcher. Um Darryl Kyle had a ton of movement. I mean, he just had a ton of natural movement. He had had that 12 to 6 curveball. That was just so devastating. And finally, the last year, last year or two that he was in Houston, they finally sat there and said, Dude, stop nibbling. Says, you know, aim for the middle of the zone. Your movement will move it to a corner. You know, and he did that, and all of a sudden, you know, he won 20 games and then went to Colorado, and, of course, that, you know, pretty much, you know, killed his career. But McCullers, I see the same way. Dude, aim for the middle of the zone. Your movement's going to take you, you know, one way or the other. Uh, and that, that curveball, you know, we saw how unhittable that was, you know, against the Yankees in, in uh, 2017. You know, 24 straight curveballs at the end of the game. I mean, it's just unbelievable. He's a guy that I've always wondered, and of course, you know, now the die has been cast with um, with Presley signed long term. But he was a he was a guy for a while. I was wondering maybe he's a closer. You know, because he's he's got that bulldog mentality, and you know, if you go into a game and you're the closer, I don't care if you throw 20 or 25 pitches. You know, have at it. Um, You may not be able to pitch two days in a row, but, you know, hey. But unfortunately with Presley, you know, getting in Montero, getting paid huge money, I I just don't know if that's, you know, really the direction you want to go with him. But he might be more of a cautionary tale. But the thing was, 2021, he was the best pitcher we had. Because He had Verlander on the shelf. Uh, You didn't have, you know, Fromber wasn't quite Fromber yet. So, I mean, you were, you know, he was the best pitcher you had up until October. I mean, if he had been healthy all the way through October, we might be, you know, back-to-back defending champs.
0: And, and let's not forget, too, he was still coming off an injury this season. We, we really didn't see the best version of Lance McCullers we can see, where I think any player will tell you they'll be better when they have an off season to rest and get ready for a new season versus when they have to rehabilitate an injury in an off season. So, you know, he came in in August, he didn't have a spring training. He, he, he wasn't bad. Lance McCullough was very effective minus maybe I say the Philly, the Philly game, he wasn't great. And then he was okay in game four, of the ALCS. He, a lot of seeing eye ground balls kind of got through the infield on him but he competed and he still gave you six innings. He gave you a chance to go win that baseball game. So I I have total faith that, that Lance McCullers bounces back next year. I, I think when you talk about extensions and you look at what we're paying him, um, that's a great deal for the Astros. I think he's won that, that click got done that, you know, I'm, I'm happy with. But I know the next two on our list, Scott, are, are, are two guys that we're not talking about the younger guys anymore. Now we're talking about those Guys, that you put a statue out in front of your stadium, you know, there's there's two guys that have the the statues out front of Minute Park. That's Bijou and Bagwell, right? They they didn't ever play anywhere else. They were your franchise cornerstones. They were they came up as Astros. They retired as Astros. Um, you've let Correa walk. You've let Springer walk. You cannot let Jose Altuve walk. You cannot let Alex Bregman walk, those are two guys that, I mean, epitomize what the Astros era has been about, you know, when you look at Bregman's swagger, like, yeah, we've been swaggy as hell since 2017, like, that's, that's who we are, when you look at Altuve, that's a guy that refuses to lose, I mean, down to final swings in 2019, game six, you know, sending everybody home happy and going to the World Series, like, people that rise up in the biggest moments who've had some of the biggest hits in franchise history, who continue to play at a high level and also want to be here, you sign them, you make sure they retire as Astros and you make sure that they don't ever put on another team's Jersey in their career.
1: Yeah. Without two, being a second baseman, you uh, kind of neat how they would do that statue. Maybe they have him like picking Biggio to the, to the ground, you know, so that he could be second base. I I, I don't know how they do that, but you know the the key is, and I was I, I was looking at the numbers today because you know I wanted to get you know, kind of a firm idea of what the comp might look like, and the problem, particularly with Bregman, is that he is not the guy that he was in two thousand eighteen, two thousand nineteen,
0: and and I don't know why he's not. I see. I would argue with you. I would argue that he's going to get back to being closer to that guy. I think he had. If you look at the numbers for 2020-2021, he had had a wrist injury that that didn't heal properly. And if you look at the way that Bregman's swing is, if his wrist isn't healthy, he's hitting essentially in golf what is a slice. He was slicing the ball to right field. Balls that he would normally drive to left center and right center were just slicing into shallow right field. This year, I think you saw a lot more of that line drive mentality, and he was a much better hitter again just due to simply being healthy.
1: Yeah, but I think when you're when you look at those numbers, uh, particularly 2019, he hits 41 home runs. I don't think we're seeing that again.
0: No, um, but I, they changed the ball too. You got to look at the ball that. that they were using.
1: Well, and I and and you're absolutely right. And I just think, unfortunately, that's maybe some fans' perception, and maybe they, you know. Cause I know there was talk last year cause he went through a, a slump early in the season and there was kind of some murmurs going on. Oh gee, I don't know. Here's the thing about Bregman that I think that people don't understand and grasp. He is one of the few players in his career who's had more walks than strikeouts. That is extremely rare. Um, have a high walk guy is not necessarily all that rare. But to have them also be low in strikeouts, because the thing is, you're taking lots of pitches whenever you're walking. You're going to have a lot of two strike counts. But he and Brantley, um, you know, who we're bringing back, both of those guys are the same. But they are—they have a really advanced hit tool uh, where they can, you know, put the bat on the ball. And so I think where Bregman is going to end up being pretty good um, in the long term is I don't think he's not a 40 home run guy. You know, you need to leave that aside. However, with the end of the shift, he could easily be a 300 hitter who hits you 20-25 home runs and walks a ton. And so if you're talking about a guy that's a 300 hitter, 400 on base percentage, 500 slugging percentage, that's a pretty damn good hitter. I don't think there's going to be too many guys in baseball putting up those numbers. Now, Altuve is kind of a different story because Altuve, you know, he's up after the 2024 season. What's Altuve going to be at that point? I don't know. However, what I do know is that he's passing 2000 career hits this next year. I mean, assuming he's healthy um, because he's only about 30 or 40 hits short. So, I mean, in, at the end of 2024, he's probably at about 2,300 hits. Then we start talking about, okay, you know, how much further away are we from the Hall of Fame? Do we want to see him reaching those milestones, like 2,500 hits, like, you know, three, 400 home runs, like, you know, we we were already over a 1,000 runs scored, but 1,500 runs scored or, you know, over 1,000, 1,200 RBIs. Do we want to see him do that in another uniform or do we want to see him do that in Houston? Because, you know, that's when, and that's where you're talking about you're building legacy in a franchise. You're, you're, you're starting to talk about him, comparing him to, you know, to Biggio, which, you know, we've already said he's better than Biggio. Uh, you're comparing him to Bagwell. You start talking, you know, and that's where I think the Houston fans got cheated Watching Nolan Ryan, you know, finish his career in, in Houston. You imagine him getting, you know, those other two no hitters as an Astro. Imagine getting him to 5,000 strikeouts as an Astro. Um, you don't want to make that mistake again. And he's the guy. I think between the two of them, I almost I, I would prioritize him, even though he might be a lesser player than Bregman over the next five years.
0: I think I think you're absolutely right in that Altuve is a must. You don't want any of those things happening in another uniform. And also, I don't. No other fan base is going to appreciate Jose Altuve at the end of his career as he hits those milestones the way that the Houston fan base would. They would be hollow moments in an unbelievable career. Now, I I, I want to look at some comps here for Bregman because I think you're right that. The 40 home run days are not what you should look for for Alex Bregman. And I actually think, in my opinion, in the ballpark that the Astros play in, that the comps that you should look at should be Craig Biggio. From 1991 through 1998, Biggio was an all-star every single year. And the number I want to look at is doubles, Scott. I'm sorry, 93 he was an all-star, but every other year he was. He goes 23 doubles, 32 doubles, 41, 44, 30, 24, 37, 51, 56. He led the league in doubles three times. Bregman had 51 doubles in 2018, 37 doubles in 2019, and 38 doubles in 2022. I think that's the number that we can expect from Bregman, and I think that's the comp there, is Bijou was the greatest right-handed doubles hitter the game has ever seen. He's, he led the league in doubles for a right-hander when he retired. I think that's what Bregman is. He's a gap-to-gap hitter. He's a line-drive hitter who I think got a little bit too obsessed with the lift in his swing when the balls were juiced. I think a lot of players were looking to get the ball into the air as the balls were juiced a little bit. And then we saw we saw a lot of players struggle at the beginning of this year when the ball wasn't flying the way it has been in previous years. Bregman got back to what he does well, which is hit line drives, and he, and he goes 35-plus doubles. So I think for Bregman – The numbers that you want to look for, I I want to see him above 280 with above 35 doubles and driving in runs, hitting line drives. I think those are the the things that translate for him. And I think that's why I feel a lot more comfortable that he's going to continue to produce because I I don't think of him as a power hitter. I think of him more like like Craig Biggio. Biggio had pop. I mean, if you look at at Biggio's career numbers, he, he had... Almost two hundred. I mean, he had almost three hundred home runs. Two hundred ninety-one. He's got um, two, three, four, five, twenty homer. Oh, more uh, five twenty homer seasons. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven twenty homer seasons. He hit twenty-one homers in his second ever in his second last season. So I, I think that's the real numbers comp for for Bregman. Is I think you can look at Biggio's numbers and, and hopefully kind of expect some similar things out of Alex Bregman.
1: And as great as Biggio was, um, Biggio is not the contact
0: hitter that Bregman is.
1: Correct. Like he, he has nowhere near the
0: two-strike eye that Alex Bregman has with that stupid low-and-outside slider that he chased for all 20 of those seasons.
1: Now, the numbers that he put up there were stupid, I, and I can't remember the exact year you may have this up, up with you. It was either 97 or 98 where He was the second player, since Trish Speaker, to have 50 doubles or
0: more and 50 stolen bases or more in a single season. Um, 1998 was 51 doubles, 50 stolen bases. And also that year, uh, BGO hit 20 homers. And so, I mean, you're looking at 51 doubles and 20 homers. Well, in 2018, Alex Bregman had 31 homers and 51 doubles. And he also stole 10 bags for you for a team that wasn't really running very much. So, and you know, one walk. guy's a Hall of Famer.
1: He's going to walk a ton. And that's, and, and you cannot, and a walk is just as good as a hit, you know, in terms of, you know, getting yeah. on base. And, and that's where I think that's the, the hidden skill that Bregman has that a lot of people are not really, because even as great as Brantley is, Brantley doesn't walk nearly as much. As Bregman does. I mean, Bregman's walking. I think upwards of fifteen percent of his uh, plate appearances, which are just crazy. Um, okay, so that was the end of our list of guys. You mentioned Hunter Brown as a possibility this year. So, question is: Is there anybody else on you know that I have left off the list that you think the Astros could look at extending?
0: I think if Jeremy Pena goes out and, and gives you another good season, you, you you follow that brace formula and you lock him up because he's a guy who, much like Kyle Tucker, like his family is not financially hurting. He is not going to change the fortune of his family by signing this deal. So you're not going to lowball Jeremy Pena if you let him go through arbitration and get to that point where, okay, it's time to sign him the way that he did with Carlos, Carlos Correa. You lock this guy up. And you don't let him leave because you you don't have when you let Carlos Correa leave, you had Jeremy Pena in the wings. We, we don't have we don't have another Jeremy Pena in the wings. So if, if if Jeremy Pena goes out and he wins another Gold club this year and he hits 275 with 20 homers and he's got an on base percentage above 350 OPS is around 800. How do you not say, OK, you've shown me enough to warn to warn it. Let's go ahead and lock you up now. Now, he's a different player, but I want to compare him to another young player that
1: signed a deal at a similar time, Uh, and it's Wander Franco uh, from the Tampa Bay Rays. And so the question is, you know, I think if you were to look at long-term, Franco might be a better player than than Pena, because the the one downside to Pena, he's not very patient. So he is a high-strikeout, low-walk guy. That, First season, though. That, yeah, that might get better. It might get better. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't happen that often where you, you turn those things around a lot. But Altuve was a, a low-walk guy early on in his career, and he's walked him away. Altuve,
0: Altuve was like Vlad early on in his career where, like, Altuve will get a base hit out of any pitch that you could throw to him, and eventually he realized, I get more extra base hits when I sit and wait for my pitch. And so I think that's more of what Pena can develop is selected, pitch selection on what he swings at to be able to drive the baseball more. I think that's what he's going to look at. And I, and I thought we we started to see that a bit more in the playoffs from Jeremy.
1: And I think we're you know, you're speaking of the playoffs. Um, and as a sabermetric numbers guy, this argument is driving me nuts in my head. But Pena... There was no moment that was too big for him. And he, you know, he came up. He had, I think, two different walk-off home runs this year during the regular season.
0: Um, And so... I was at one of them. I have on video. I called it, and then he hit it on July 3rd for my birthday. I was there.
1: And so, you know, those are, you know... And and the problem is, is that you can't really... uh, There's no number nobody has really been able to quantify clutchness in any real way and and that's you know difficult for those of us who are into stats and that, and that's why you know Bill James for years you know refused to believe that you know clutch existed when it clearly does I mean you see what David Ortiz does in the playoffs for instance I mean you can't deny that some guys just have it and just because you can't define it, doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. He has it, and you know there's other guys you know, over the course. Of, you know, the course of the years. I mean, Derek Jeter had it. Derek Jeter was a, probably maybe the worst fielding shortstop in the Hall of Fame. But you know, let let's put that aside for a second. Derek Jeter had some moments, you know, with the bat and the glove, you know, that are iconic moments. That you you know you can't just explain off by saying yeah Clash Dad doesn't exist. So I think Pena has that. He's also you know, you you guys are you know are not living in Houston. He's been a part of the uh, the H E B ads you know along with Lance McCullers and Jose Altuve Knox Bregman. Um, And so you know he's built up quite a personality. There was one day here in the off season where he worked uh, the drive through at a Cane's. so I mean, there's little things like that where it's not only the the stats of a player, but and, would and I good. would say
0: too, he I, I don't know if a player has excited the women of Houston as much as Jeremy Pena has since Brad Ausmus was in town. You you know, you're talking about some some ladies who are loving them in Astro. Brad Ospice got a lot of love and, and Pena's is getting a similar treatment here from, from the single women of Houston. And not even all single women, just the women of Houston. I was gonna say my wife is an Osmus lover to this day. They all did. But I, I don't know what it was about Brad. everybody loved Brad Osmus. He was I guess a good looking smart guy, I guess. Well, I don't know about the smart. I think it was probably the other part but uh, any time you mentioned Osmus, he had to say, "Oh, went to Dartmouth." That was the first any time on a broadcast the, the visiting team talked about Osmus, it was, oh, he went to Dartmouth."
1: Yeah, I think he won one year he was playing. I think the the, the Golden Dairy Award, which was like you know for uh yeah you know, for guys who are you know into guys and baseball. Yeah, so Pena is a guy that has that infectious personality. I think that a lot of people will gravitate to, and so. And I, I don't know what that's worth. I, I can't put a dollar figure on that.
0: But but I do think okay. you get him cheaper now than if you wait.
1: Yeah, and I think that this year is really the key. If you see him go, I think he had about 25 walks this year. Let's say he bumps it up 35, you know, just this year. You know, 10 more walks. Not nine. You know, we're not asking for much. If you see that growth in him as a hitter, maybe you see a fewer strikeouts you know, maybe 10 or 15 fewer strikeouts, 10 or 15 more walks. He's a guy that I would jump at because that shows growth. And I think you can bet on that growth. If you see him doing the exact same things as he was last year, you know, still maybe go after him, but maybe you, you don't offer him maybe quite as much, you know, maybe the Wander Franco contract might end up being a, a decent
0: comp if we see growth out of him. Yeah, so last year for Pena, walk percent was 3.9, strikeout percent was 24. I'm with you. The walk percent definitely needs to get up. If we could get him up to 7% on that walk percentage and cut that strikeout percent to, I don't want to be outrageous, give me 20%. Cause I, don't, I don't necessarily mind strikeouts. They're an out. They're better than a double play. It's it's an overlooked, It's, a, it's an out. You know, it's not the end of the world. I think if you can get him a twenty percent K rate and seven percent, seven percent, eight percent walk rate, and he shows you that progression. The on base percentage needs to go up. That that'll happen with the walk rate. He hit two fifty two this year and had a two eighty nine on base percentage. That's not that's not acceptable theoretically in a big league world. You need to be, I don't know, seventy points above your batting average with your on base percentage. I think the, the good ones are when you look at finding ways to get on base. And so those are some areas he can grow. But yeah, I think we both agree that. That's another foundational piece. That if you want to keep this window open as long as you can, getting those young guys signed—not cheap, but hometown young deals—that allow you to go out and, and get splashes like a, a Bray you at first base when you need them, or or to go out and sign sign a pitcher to, to push you over the top, or to make a trade and go get somebody because you have uh, all these young young pitchers locked up and, and you know you can afford to spend a little bit on the trade market this year. Those are those are the kind of deals that make or break a ball club. I, I think back, Scott, to when I was a kid growing up and you know, for those of you who don't remember, the Astros were a national league team years ago and, and, and we participate, we played in the National League Central for the most part when I was when I was a kid. Obviously they started in the NL West, but um, I really remember them playing against the Cardinals a lot. And it seemed to me in, in those late 90s, early 2000s Cardinals teams, that every time they needed something, they didn't have to go make a trade. They didn't have to sign a free agent. They typically had somebody ready to go, ready to take that starting job, coming up from the minor leagues. And it just, as a kid, I was always amazed that any time somebody got hurt or anytime you thought the Cardinals were going to take a step back, they had a young minor league kid or a young rookie ready to go to, to, to step up and, and to take that place. And, you know, I, I still remember when the Cardinals lost Renteria. Okay, here we go. Here's our opportunity. They lost the shortstop. Up comes David freaking Eckstein, you know, uh, or to take over from or got him from the Angels. But either way, they had these guys that they would always be able to plug and fill from the minor leagues that just seemed to solve any issues that they had.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, the one mistake um, that I remember, you know, growing up, and this happened, you know, heck, that was when Drake McLean first bought the team. This is back in 92. He goes out and he says, I'm going to bring in some hometown heroes. So he goes out and signs Doug Dreybrack and Greg Swindell. Uh, Greg Swindell, um, uh, in particular, it was a guy you know that kind of didn't take care of himself. You were mentioning you know some of those guys like Eddie Lacy earlier in, in the show. Um, the joke on him was that you know the umpire thought he was a uh, was cheating, asked him to empty his pockets, and a jelly donut fell out. Um, but the fans didn't come out because they didn't have any connection to Doug Drayback. He was from Victoria, yes, yeah, you know, 125 miles from Houston. Gregsonville went to the University of Texas. He's uh, a big star with Roger Clemens on the same staff, you know, that, you know, they went, you know, to the College World Series. You know, that was nice. But the thing is that what Drake McLean didn't understand is that fans show up for two reasons. Reason one and one A is you have a winner. People want to go watch a winner. But the second thing is you have to have a connection with the guys on the team. And that's what you get is when you build up a relationship with Jose Altuve and you build up a relationship with Alex Bregman, you build up a relationship with Jeremy Pena, with Frambois Valdez, you have all of that past history just with you. And those things, and that's huge because those guys are going to have bad days. Christian Javier is going to go out there and he's going to have a day where he's just getting beat around the yard. Uh, I remember a story. You don't know if you uh, remember a guy, Mark Portugal. I uh, used to pitch for the Astros. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's a hilarious guy. So he's telling the story that he went at, You know, he he starts a game in Cincinnati. Throws starts the game with back to back to back jacks. I mean, he's down three nothing. He hasn't you know even gotten an out. And now it comes to the pitching coach. And the pitcher, he's he's looking at pitching cozy, he's like, "What in the hell are you doing out here?" He says, "I'm just giving the fireworks guy a chance to reload." And and you're going to have, you know, every pitcher has those days. I mean, Justin Verlander's had he you know, had those days. He had one won the World Series, you know, where uh, he had one in the uh, in the league, cha- uh, not the league championship series, but the divisional round. You have those days where you're going to get beat around the yard, and so. If I can sit there and I can look at Christian Javier having one of those days and remember like, oh, yeah, he pitched that no hitter in the World Series. Well, not not all him, obviously, but, you know, he was the main guy. Those memories that you had to back on, you know, that's goodwill towards those guys. Altuve, you mentioned his, you know, walk off home run in 2019. He, he, he's going through like a slump that he went through in the World Series in the playoffs. He's He's in a no for 20. You're like, oh, jeez. Oh, yeah. He's the guy that hit one off Chapman to win you know, the pennant back in 2019. Yeah, he's the 2017 MVP. Yeah, we have two rings. Yeah, I, I yeah, I love that guy. They, you, I guarantee it. Jose Abreu goes for an over 20 this year. He doesn't have that goodwill built up. He was a white sock. We don't know him. So you know, we don't have that same affinity towards them. And that's how you keep getting fans to come back to the ballpark is you have a group of guys who they love and they want to root for.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I, I want to take a little shift here. Uh, I know we talk a lot of baseball. We talk a lot of politics, but at the end of the day, right, our, our show is, is called The Snap Hook because we, we both are or were high school golfers and both still are golfers. Um, Tiger Woods announced this week that he's back he's going to be playing uh in this week's tournament the genesis open at riviera and the the comment he made was as in pure tiger fashion if i didn't think i win i wouldn't be out here competing um obviously no let's let's not ask the question of of, do you think tiger could win because we all want to say yes but i think the realistic answer there if you look at anybody who's playing golf nowadays I don't see how a hobbled Tiger is going to take on a healthy John Rom or Scotty Scheffler or even JT when he's clicking. But what does it, in your opinion, at this point, mean to the game of golf to have Tiger playing just a regular PJ Tour event? Because he's got himself geared up for the majors. He's, you know, that we've seen him those first two rounds. He looks okay, and then the body wears down. You know, what does it mean, in your opinion, that he's out here trying to do this for just a regular PJ Tour event?
1: Well, you know, regardless of what you may think of Tiger, and, and Tiger certainly has, you know, you know, we can't really get past the reason why he's hobbled. Um, you know, that's something that he you know, he's done to himself. Uh, and of course, his image, you know, took a, a huge beating, you know, before that. But he's one of the titans of golf. You know, back in the, you know, back in the 80s, you know, you could go through a similar time where Nicholas was getting older. He wins the 86 Masters, but really, after, you know, past the early 80s, he's really not competitive uh, for the most part. Uh, But he's out there. Fans love to watch him. You know, and, and, you know, Tiger's a guy that, you know, if you're in person watching the event, yeah, I'm going to go watch him play a few holes. You know, no, he's not the best golfer in the world. No, he's not probably not one of the 10, 20, or 30 best golfers in the world at this point. But he's a titan of the game. He's he's Arnold Palmer. You know, he's Jack Nicholas. Um, I don't know if, if you put Tom Watson on that level. You know, I,
0: suggest... I I would personally. I think Tom Tom was the fill to to Jack Nicholas's Tiger. I think you've you've got to have that guy that you're battling, and there is a period of time where those two were clearly better than everybody else out there. And you
1: got to remember, it's an entertainment. Yeah, it's an entertainment endeavor at the end of the day because, you know, there's probably no guy who's more entertaining over the years than Lee Trevino. Not the best golfer, you know, in the world at any point. But, you know, he was a guy that could beat you. Uh, My favorite story is he he went to Wingfoot, you know, for the U.S. Open. And he took, you know, he took his putter out and he, he went over into the parking lot and he started putting some balls on the parking lot. And, you know, one of the reporters went out there and asked him, you know, what he was doing. And he says, well, this is the only place I could find that simulates the speed of the greens. And, and I think the PGA Tour fined him for that one. But, you know, it's it's it was funny. But, you know, he's, you know, both of you, know, both you and I play a fade. I've played a I've played a draw, you know, when I was younger. But he used to sit there and say that you, know, you can talk to a fade, but a hook won't listen. Uh, that was one of his famous quotes, but he's a guy that you could follow for four hours and just be absolutely entertained. And he might shoot seventy five, and you know, and, that, and that's okay. Um, and and I think you know that Tiger, you know, I don't think Tiger's not nearly as gregarious, obviously, as like Trevino, but he's one of those guys that you could walk out there, he could shoot seventy four, seventy six, eighty, you'd be entertained, you know, because there might be one shot he hits, you know, that day where you're like, wow. That's the old tiger, and that's that's what I think he's doing. You know, for the sport, I think at this point.
0: And with that too, I, I don't know if if you plan on watching it or not, but uh, the day that this podcast is, is being released, Wednesday the fifteenth, the first season of, of the Netflix show, um, Full Swing, it's called, is is being released. Where they they had cameras out on the P J tour last year, they they. We're lucky enough, all four major winners were were guys that were being followed. They were following guys who left the tour to go to live. Uh, I I guess my question to you, Scott, is is this something that you're interested in as a golf fan? Is it something that you want to watch? And um, if so, why?
1: I think any time you can humanize any athlete is a good thing. Because the thing is, is that, you know, like we were talking about with, you know, Jalen Hurts. And you were talking about, you know, Patrick Mahomes earlier in the show going back to football. These guys were doing amazing athletic things. But they're human. They're people. And you know, particularly, you know, Mahomes has made, you know, a killing, you know, in those state farm commercials, you know, over basic his dorkiness for lack of a better, you know, back of a letter term. I wanna see you know, I want to see these guys humanized. Because the thing is is that, you know, it it makes it it makes it harder to hate them. You know, it makes them harder to, you know, You don't want to enjoy seeing a guy fail. You want to see, you know, a major championship like two guys in the final round. One guy shoots a sixty-four, the other guy shoots a sixty-five. I mean, that's what you want to see. You want to see both guys playing their very best, and you know, just seeing the human element makes it that much more entertaining. You know, to know, you know, maybe, hey, this guy's got a sense. You know, Rory McIlroy is a pretty funny guy. You know, if you if you ever watch him. Uh, but unfortunately, with golf, with the way they've you know they've shown the sport, you know, in every other sport, you know, you're you're screaming, you're yelling, you're ranting, raving. Yeah, I want to see, want to see these guys be a little bit more gregarious, have fun out there because you know, that's what we do when we go out on a golf course. You know, these days I'm not going to break ninety, but I'm going to try to enjoy every minute I'm out
0: there. I think it's going to be really interesting because. I'm a huge Hard Knocks guy. I look forward to the show every year. really doesn't even matter to me the team that they're covering. Maybe when they do the Cowboys, I will say I'm a lot less interested than any other team. But that being said, I love Hard Knocks. I love the the behind-the-scenes look. I love seeing what these guys go through to be able to be the best at what they do. That's what makes the show fantastic. And what I'm looking forward to with, with full swing is I don't think people realize sometimes just how good these guys really are. Yeah. You look at, you look at like the guy who's the hundredth on the money, hundredth, hundredth on the money list, right? If you put that guy out in my, in my money game on Sundays that I play in, he is going to clean up. He's going to be the best golfer we've ever seen. And he's going to put on a show out there. But when you watch the PGA Tour and this guy comes in 30th and you don't really see a lot of them on TV because we're showing the same guys over and over again, you have no idea who this guy is. And so I think it's going to be a great way to to get to know some of the, not only the main stars of the game, but some of those those mid-level guys. Because I, I don't know about you. But you know, as a guy who played high school golf growing up, obviously I watched a lot of golf growing up, and I had irrational hatred for players, and I had irrational love for certain players. I was Team Tiger, so I hated Phil. I didn't like Vijay. I loved uh, Stuart Sink. I loved I loved uh, Furyk. I I didn't like Rory, Rory at first when he was coming up. Now now I do. I don't like Patrick Reed. You know, there's just I don't like. Certain guys, and then I have a. I didn't like. I, I'm not a huge Spieth guy. I have nothing against Spieth as a human being, but I. That's not who I want to see win when he's out there, and I, I. think they're all irrational because it. A lot of it comes down to who your sponsors are for me. Like I don't like Callaway as a club maker, so typically I don't. Like, I don't root for Callaway players, but I think at least this gives us some some new rooting interests in the same way of. You know, just like when you watch Hard Knocks and you see the third string running back who is an undrafted free agent. He's got this great backstory and he makes the team. And and for some reason, you're happy for this random 21-year-old who is now going to be the, the third string running back and is never going to see the field. But he made the team. And I think it's going to be going to give you some of those same behind the ropes looks that you would get. And it'll give you something new to root for. It'll give you a little bit of that background. And I think you're right. It's going to give us a little bit more personality. Because I, I do golf is the worst broadcast of any professional sports. It, it the way that they button everything up, and um, I, I think what what's happened with the Capital One matches has really shown us how fun some of the commentary out there can be. And I think this is a great way for us to maybe see some of that trash talking or some of the inside stuff that we didn't get to see on cameras. Because you know I watched the majors, I watched all these tournaments that they're going to be showing, so it'll be nice to see. What happened when CBS wasn't looking?
1: Yeah, and I I think to understand how good these guys are, and there was a time, I remember there was a day, um, way way back in the day. So like the last tournament I played in high school, like at this point I was like I'm practically done with golf. I'm I'm not you know going to play golf competitively. Go out to Sasha Harbor. And like I have one of those rounds where just like I'm sinking putts from off the green. I mean, it's just like it's ridiculous. So I'm going into the last like four holes, even par, which was just outrageous for me. You know, I end up getting six over the last four holes, shoot 78. But that's at Sasha Harbor, and, and I, I'm sure you've played that course before.
0: That course has my demons. That I I have shot my worst numbers in golf at South Shore Harbor. I. I shot an 86 there. was was as happy as I could be because I, I have blown up on levels that I didn't think was humanly possible at South Shore Harbor, so, Scott.
1: So to tell you, so, so tell you how good these guys are, right? Um, after I finished, um, my dad and I, we joined the MGA at Clear Lake Country Club uh, back when it was open. And, and a country club. <laughs> yeah, well, no, this was after Bay Oaks had opened, so it was a public course at this point. And so, they decided to hold a tournament at the at you know, the TPC back when it was you know still being used for the Houston Open. And so, Is that the Woodlands course, yeah, the Woodlands you know okay. where they used to have the T- uh, where they used to have the Houston Open every year. And so, I'm carrying at the time a ten, and you know I'm at this point in my career I'm a pretty good golfer at this point. I mean I'm hitting 270, 280, you know. Um, Yeah, good distance on the irons. Yeah, I'm a decent chipper. You know, probably putting has always been my weak point of my game. But you know, I'm a probably fair golfer. So I go out there with a ten. We're playing from the blue tees. I shoot a 100 at the TPC, and here's the key: I came in third in my flight with a hundred, with a ten. I mean that's a net ninety, folks, <laughs> and I come in third place. You cannot believe how long these courses are that these guys are playing, and this was back in those days. I mean they're longer now. I mean I was so tired of hitting at 250 out in the middle of the fairway and having 200 yards to the green, and you know, and as a you know, a pretty good amateur golfer, but not a great amateur golfer. I could hit a long iron 200 yards accurately every now and then, but I wasn't going to do it routinely. And here these guys are out there, you know, if they're 200 yards out, they're hitting like what, six, seven iron. I mean, it's just, so to give y'all guys, uh, to give those of y'all listening an idea, because I know that, you know, Tim, I saw on my Facebook, you were bragging about a, a time you shot 72 Uh,
0: my goal my goal for 2022 was i wanted to shoot even par i'd never done it uh i grinded my ass off for a good eight months and my my course is par 70 and i i did pull it off three times uh in 2022
1: but the key is is like if you put one of these guys out on your course
0: they're breaking they're breaking 60
1: yeah exactly and, and that's not to say that, you know, golf's an easy game or that, you know, your course is an easy course. You know, Sasha Harbor is kind of the same. I mean, Sasha Harbor, um, I was a member out there for a while. So, you know, there's some, you know, there's going to be some days where I break 80 and I'm like, hey, uh, you know, I could do this thing. Uh, I mean, I remember one time and I had some friends that I played with, you know, in high school, we played uh, Waterwood National. I don't know if you remember that course up in Huntsville. Uh
0: yes 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 I think they changed the name though I think they they've changed it a couple times it's it's now uh Sam okay there's one that was Raven something that's now the Sam Houston College course
1: yeah it, it they the Sam Houston team used that course back in, when it was open but I think what happened was is the development closed down and so the homeowners were like out there mowing the gra- you know mowing the greens and what so it stayed open for a lot longer but it was an entertaining course i mean and the way they did it is they had like you know the one par three i remember it was like 130 for the whites 150 for the blues 230 all carry from the tips if you can imagine that and so like i'm pulling out a three wood and just hitting it fall as hard as i can can back in those days but I remember playing the tips one day and shooting a 79 and one of the guys on my team says like, you know, one of the guys who was on my golf team he's like, why don't you go out for one of the tours? And I just started laughing. It's like, are you freaking kidding me?
0: Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I, to be completely honest, you can look me up on, on the uh, United States USGA. I, I carry a, a 0.7 right now. Um, and the guys that I play with, I have a group that I regularly play with. One of them, can shoot anywhere from a, a 95 to an 82 is what I've seen the lowest. And the other guy struggles to break a hundred, a good rounds, 97, 98. So to these guys, when I, when I go out and I shoot 74, 75, that's all, oh man, I, I want a caddy for you when you go pro. I want to, I want to be your guy. You should, well, what are you doing? You know, you should be going pro. I people don't realize I spent a majority of my high school life grinding my ass off on a driving range. My parents traded golf, uh, traded gift certificates to their restaurant so I could have unlimited golf lessons. That is how I have the ability that I have. And even then, I am nowhere near where I would need to be to even make a cut, let alone a single dollar, at a Corn Fairy event, not even a PGA Tour event. I I had the fortune of, of playing in a Hooters Tour event out at, um, is it, is it golf Crest? Of the course, they're in Pearland. That's yeah. member owned. Yeah, I, I played with this guy and I watched him. I, I played well that day. I sh, uh, shot like seventy-seven. I thought, I, and I was in high school. That was a pretty good score for me. I'm a better golfer now than I was in high school. And so this guy shoots seventy. I shoot seventy-seven. This guy, like a walk in the park, shot sixty-five. And I, I finally got a chance to ask him, what you know? Why are you here? This is the Hooters Tour. I just watched you. Shoot the smoothest 65 I've ever seen in my entire life. And he was like, I can't do it four times in a row. That's why I'm here. We're at this course right here, which is not a PGA Tour course. And I couldn't give you that, I couldn't give you that 65 four rounds in a row out here. Those guys on the PGA Tour are playing the toughest golf courses in the world. And they would, they can give you that 65 four days in a row. That's the big difference. We all get hot. We all have good rounds. We all play. Every now and then, you know, the club face is lining up perfectly and and things like that. But to be able to go and not only break par four days consecutively, but to go as low as these guys do under par and to make golf courses that you and I would. I mean, I I played I played Tory Pines the week after the AT&T tournament was out there. I've never seen rough like that in my life, and that was just a regular tournament. That wasn't the U.S. Open. It was it was shin length. It was up to my shins. I've never putted on greens like that in my life. I had seven, th- seven three-putts on nine holes and shot an 84 out there. It was, I, I just to get my mind into, the greens weren't even rolling as fast because it's been a week, but here's where the rough's at. Here's these, these PGA pros were just out here. I'm not playing the tips, but even so, couldn't break 80 and it's just an it's unbelievable to know that these guys are out there doing that we have a little bit more knowledge of how good they are simply because we've played this game and have for a long time and i'm assuming you spent those same hours out at the range when when you were a kid in yeah. high school and yeah, taking less got as good as we did and even that wasn't good enough
1: well and, and i remember the toughest rounds i remember playing there was a uh, there's a golf course, and I, I don't know if it's still open, but it's called The Falls. Um, and it's, you know, out, you know, you're driving west, and I, um, it's out, uh, I can't remember, but it's out of I-10, right? And they, they had the big grass greens. And those, so, will, those
0: will get you if you've only been a Bermuda you guy your whole life.
1: Well, and so I'm, I'm sitting here playing on the first hole, and I'm on the green regulation. I mean, it's a par five. I got like a... 25, 30 foot putt, you know, and I'm putting the ball, it gets to about a foot from the hole, and I'm like, all right, I got me a par, then the ball started coming back, the ball ended up being two feet longer than where I'd put it from, I think I just picked the ball up, said, nope, nope, (laughs) nope, (laughs) I'm not doing that. But you know, there's some yeah, there's some ridiculous you know golf you know courses out there and some ridiculous things and, and and you know you just have to and and these guys I mean particularly like you know when you watch them in the Masters and you see what these guys are doing you can have no idea how difficult it has to be to put those greens, no idea. Yeah,
0: yeah those complex greens are. We, we don't get that on the munis that we're playing, you know, and, and then. It's, it's just, it'll be nice. It'll be nice to see. Long story short, as we've, we've talked a lot about how hard golf is. Um, but it'll be nice to see the, the behind the scene look that we're going to get. Um, and it, it just, anything that'll get me excited through my, uh, through my rest of my work week so I can get out and I do a little golf teaching on Saturdays and then I play every Sunday. So whatever can hold me over till then.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, I've been playing in, uh, my, my people, I play golf with my my brother-in-law's had shoulder surgery. And my dad's not doing so good, so unfortunately, I haven't been out there playing much golf. You know, I guess I could find some new people to play with, but
0: I might just uh, I might just have to set you up with my old man there, Scott, as he's he's looking for people to play with, and I think it'd be nice if we can come in and, and let the viewers know what we shot on the on the hey, you know, this was a uh, seventy-eight this week or whatever it was. Uh,
1: probably more like a ninety-seven. <laughs>
0: we'll get you back down low. Don't worry. But um, I think that's going to wrap it up here for this week as we've kind of done the whole gambit of of football, baseball, even a little golf talk here on, on the snap hook and uh, just again, very excited, looking forward to that documentary series coming out, but also just there's so much hope uh, in the sports world in Houston that it's been a long time since things have at least, Two of of the three sports have been been looking in a good direction, and um, I think we're going to have some very exciting things to to talk about as as the Texans continue to fill out their coaching staff. Absolutely. Well, as always, I have been Tim Costello. He's been Scott Barzilla. You can always find me on Twitter, Tim underscore Costello 10. Scott, you're still on your website. Where's that?
1: That is? Halloffamindex.com and also Battle Red blog and you can also find me on Twitter at sbarzilla.
0: Be sure to like and subscribe, give us a five star rating and we will see you in the fairway next week.